Let's go to the Lord now, the one who holds us fast, and let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would hold our hearts fast now as we look at your word. Uh, Lord, we have tethered ourselves to the living God in the person of his Son. And though the storms may come, leading up to the final storm when we wade through the waters of death and enter the realm beyond. I thank you that Christ holds us fast. That no matter what, even if our own minds slip beyond the point of even being able to trust you anymore, because we don't even, we, we, we just, we've completely lost our mind. You know our name. Even if I forget my name, you will remember me to the ages and hold me fast forever. Because, not because of what I have done, but because of who you are. And because I put my faith in you. And I just pray that you would help us this morning to hold fast to you because you hold to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, this morning, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at a big chunk of verses together. 41 verses. Acts 2, 1 to 41. So unlike what I usually do, I'm not going to read all these verses up front and then read them again as we go through. Uh, I am going to read them as we come to them. And also... There's going to be a lot of details here that we, uh, we aren't going to be able to dive into, but we are going to, um, I'm not saying it's exactly a flyover, but if there's something that doesn't get addressed and you've got questions about it, that's what sermon discussion on Sunday mornings is for. So write them down and, and ask them, and if I know the answer or I might have something to say, I'll say it, and if not, I may say, I'll get back to you. So um, with that said... Uh, I want to point out that there's going to be three main sections to these 41 verses. In verses 1 to 13, we're going to look at the, the Holy Spirit coming on these believers. That's the first chunk. Then Peter stands up and preaches to the crowds in verse 14 to 36. And then the third movement of these verses in 37 to 41, we'll see the crowds respond. So, big chunk of verses. How do you put it all together? Well, there's three parts to it. The Spirit comes down, Peter stands up, and preaches, and people kneel before Jesus. They respond in faith, and 3,000 believe. This is like Billy Graham, the first Billy Graham style open-air service, right? And 3,000 people come forward. And respond to the living God. All right. Um, so let's start with chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. The Spirit comes. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. And what I'm going to do as I read, and this is why this is why it'd be really helpful for you to just follow along in your Bible if you have your Bible, so you don't get lost. Um, I'm going to be pausing. And explain. So I'm, again, I'm not going to read and then reread as we come back through. I'm going to kind of explain some things and then we'll dive in at certain places deeper. 
So when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Pause, what's, what's Pentecost? We don't use that word normally, unless you think of Pentecostal or something. Um, the word Pentecost is a Greek word, penta, hear the word five there, penta, uh, and it means 50th, 50th, or 50th. It was a special day, it was a Jewish festival called the Feast of Weeks, and it was celebrated 50 days after Passover. So Jesus, if you might remember this, died on Passover week as a Passover lamb. That's how he, he planned it that way. He planned for his death to be occurring on the week of Passover, on the day that the lambs were being slaughtered. And so Jesus dies Passover week. 50 days later, they're celebrating Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, which is a feast in the Old Testament, lasts seven days, and is celebrated God's blessing of food and prosperity on his people. And so here God sends on them the greatest blessing, his own, not food, bread from heaven, but his spirit, his very life to them person of the spirit verse 2 a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them so i want you to pause again and we're going to notice two things here first there's a sound like a mighty blowing wind so it doesn't say that there was a violent, mighty hurricane in the house. You know, Peter's picture of his mom blows off the wall and, the, you know, the, the curtains are wet. That, that doesn't seem to be the image here. It, it sounds like a violent wind. Okay, so there's this rushing sound. It's, it's a sound, not an actual hurricane. Um, and then there's pictures, uh, or no, then there's tongues of fire. What seems like tongues of fire. So that means that, that this doesn't seem to be literal flames on their heads singeing their hair. They're, it literally says there, there's the appearance of fire. Why wind and fire? Well, in the Bible, um, there are multiple images actually more than this that the, the bible gives us to describe the spirit of god wind water and fire are the three of the most common why well god god created this world to to show who he was to put himself on display and he infused into the very fabric of creation different pictures of who he was and so one of these is wind okay one of the first ones that show up in the bible wind in greek and in hebrew is the same word as spirit the breath of god so the wind used here in this setting and acts the sound of a rushing wind it's a symbol of the invisible personal power of god that makes things happen that brings 
life and breath to all flesh on earth. Like, the way the biblical authors thought about it, you have wind inside of you. And guess what? When that wind stops, you're dead. No wind, no life. So, this is a picture for us of the very life of God. God's wind gives... Where did that wind that's in you come from? He breathed into Adam the breath of life. And Adam became a living being. All things have the breath of life because God is the first breather. This is the, the image. You see a tree blowing like this, but you don't see the wind. Jesus uses this illustration in, in John chapter 3. The wind blows where it will. You can't see where it comes or where it goes. That's how it is with the Spirit of God. When he saves somebody, my eyes are open. Wait, you see the results, the effects, but you don't see the wind. Wind, again, in Hebrew and Greek, both the, the word pneuma in Greek um, and the word um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the Hebrew word. Popped right out of my head. Anyway, the word in Hebrew for uh, um, spirit, ruach, the ruach of God, ruach or ruach, um, is uh, is the word for spirit or breath. The same word. And so wind is used as a symbol. One place this shows up most famously is Genesis one verse two. God's wind, His spirit, is hovering over the waters, and God says, let there be light, and there's light, and he goes on to create the world, separating the waters for dry land to appear. And that theme goes on repeat all over the Bible. God creates life for his people through the waters by wind or spirit or breath. Um, uh, the flood narrative. God's wind dries up the waters so that the dry land appears. Uh, God's exodus narrative. The wind of God goes over the waters and dries up the land like the Genesis 1, third day, drying up, so that the people of God can cross over through life. It's, it's the idea that the wind of God brings life. That's just a theme. The life-giving power of God's Spirit, His personal presence that brings life to all things. And so, wind symbolizes God's presence coming into this room. Filling the room with the, the same power that made the waters split. This power is going to bring God's life-giving power to these early disciples. And then they see fire. Well, what about this fire? Fire also symbolizes God's Spirit's presence. For example... Moses encounters God's presence in fire. Where? Shout it out. Burning bush. Burning bush. Where else? Well, it's not anymore. Yeah, the judge of purifying fire. Fire kills, fire purifies. You got a purified gold ring, you put it through fire. It's another image. God's purifying power. Um, but, but Mount Sinai. There's fire. God leads his people out of Egypt with a pillar of cloud by day, and then the fire in the cloud is visible only at night. It's like a cloud of smoke, fire going before them. Okay? So 
Fire symbolizes the presence of God. We could go on and on, and so does water. We don't see that image here, so, um, although you do see it in the language of pouring. He's pouring out his spirit in the book of Joel. That's like a flood language. Pouring, cleansing, washing. The spirit cleans. The spirit purifies. The spirit empowers. The spirit gives life. All these images. God created a world filled with fire, filled with water, filled with wind, so that we would be able to have mental pictures of, of what, what he's like. He could tell us these things, or he could let us taste them, see them, touch them, experience them in this physical world, so that we may know and praise him more truly for who he is. Right? And we could go on and on. He created fathers so that we could know a little bit more of what it is that he is the father of all. He created families so that we would have pictures of the family of Jesus that will last for all time. And on and on it goes. So, wind and fire fill the rooms. Tangible symbols. God is showing up. The God of Israel is showing up like he's shown up in the past. Drum roll. Verse 4. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, verse 5, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? These are like crude fishermen and stuff. They live in Galilee. They're not like scholars. They haven't been to college and learned 30 languages. Like, what's, what's going on here? You know? It'd be like if you went down to Price Chopper and all of a sudden, like, somebody's speaking foreign language. You're like, I know where you grew up. Like, you, you don't know Arabic. What's going on? Um, they're amazed. How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? And then Luke just has this huge list. And it really goes, it's like global. He wants you, he's just picturing, he's picking places from all over. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, that's where the book of Acts ends, the ends of the earth, both Jews and converts to Judaism, so Gentiles and Jews, uh, people who converted to Judaism who aren't Jewish. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. So, when the Spirit... The sound of wind and the appearance of fire comes on his disciples. They're declaring the wonders of God in these tongues. Now, if you look ahead to verses 16 and all the way to verse 18, 16, 17, 18, the Apostle Peter quotes from the Old Testament prophet Joel, and he, he says that what's happening is that these 120 believers are prophesying. In other words, they are declaring the wonders in tongues in verse 11, and it's called prophecy by Peter in verses 16 to 18. Now, these Christians, these 120 Christians who are speaking in these tongues and prophesying, they're declaring the wonders of God, they're not standing around predicting the future. 
okay? The way we sometimes think about prophecy. As we saw a few months ago in our study of 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14, prophecy is actually a much bigger concept than just declaring something that will happen in the future. Prophecy is simply, at its base level, it's declaring truth about God and his plans. Whether you're singing it, you're praying it, you're praising it, truth that comes from God and from God's spirit. And so proclaiming truths and praise about Jesus the Messiah can be called prophecy. So can praising God in other tongues, as here. Luke, who's the writer of Acts that we're reading, says in his gospel, called Luke, chapter 1, verse 67, that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And if you read Zechariah's prophecy there, most of what he's doing is just praising God. Okay? Praising God for the gift of the Messiah, Jesus. And then quoting the Old Testament. That's mostly what he does there. Celebrating the Messiah. So in Acts 2, the gift of tongues given to this group of early believers, it's lumped under the idea of prophecy. And what they're prophesying about, they're declaring the wonders of God. Um, and he doesn't say what these wonders of God are, but any guesses what they might be declaring the wonders of God about? What's just happened? The resurrection. Yeah, Jesus has just rose from the dead. Their king has beat death. That's something to declare the wonders of God. So they're prophesying about that. Declaring the wonders of God in tongues as the Spirit has enabled. And people in Jerusalem from all over the world, they're hearing the words of the apostles in their own languages. Now, there could be at least one of there could be one of at least two things going on here. Okay? And not everybody agrees on what's going on here. No surprise, right? One option is that the disciples are actually speaking these foreign languages that they've never learned. And that they know that they're speaking these foreign languages, and they can understand what they're saying. Or, I guess you could say, or maybe they don't, but they're actually speaking an actual foreign language. And the people are actually hearing them speaking this actual foreign language because they are speaking an actual foreign language. So if that's the case, then this phenomenon here that we read about in chapter 2 of speaking in tongues, it would really seem to be a different type of tongue speaking than the one that Paul talks about in Corinthians. If you remember back to the sermons through Corinthians, the tongues that are spoken there are unintelligible utterances of praise to God. Speech given by the Spirit of God for the praise of God, declaring his wonders. Speech that, if humans are suddenly able to understand it, it also requires a supernatural enabling of the Spirit to interpret. So, I'm just going to read, by way of reminder, from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2. Paul writes there about this tongue speaking in Corinthians. Anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. They're declaring, the, they're praising God. Indeed, <laughs> no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. That's the most basic truth about 
tongues. They are to God, and people don't understand them. Unless, as Paul goes on to clarify later, an interpretation is also given by God, either to the one speaking or to someone else who suddenly hears them, and I would argue, in their own language and understands it. So if the disciples are actually speaking all these various languages here, uh, and they were, so you have to pause. If the disciples are speaking human languages here, actual human languages, and they are, um, it, it would seem to be a different phenomenon than what Paul calls tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. I'm not saying unrelated, but different. Because in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, it seems like no one understands them unless a miracle happens. Here, it seems like everyone understands. If, if, if they're actually speaking these languages, they're not actually, the miracle is what they're speaking, not what's being heard. Another key view of this event, though, sees the apostles as prophesying and praising God in other tongues, exactly like the ones described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 14. So tongues that are not understandable to humans, apart from God also giving the gift of hearing and understanding what's being said. So, in other words, these 120 believers in Jesus, they're speaking, or perhaps even singing here, praises to God in ecstatic language, in tongues, like talked about in 1 Corinthians 14, unintelligible speech on its own, which maybe, according to this view, would explain why many people in Jerusalem who hear them think they're drunk, because they are not hearing their own languages being spoken. They're hearing what you might hear today if you walk into a charismatic service and everyone is speaking in tongues and you're not sure how they hear it. They only hear babble, so they chalk the speech up to drunkenness because they don't understand. But countless others, according to this other perspective, with the help of the Spirit, are suddenly able to hear and interpret the tongues being spoken because they actually hear them in their own language. So, I mean, regardless, if you got it, that would be amazing. You, you are, you've traveled, imagine you traveled to, um, you traveled to Israel. We all as a church went to Israel to visit the temple, and there's lots of people there, and you're hearing speech all day that you don't understand. Or maybe you know it, you understand it, but it's not your language. And you're from all over the world. And all of a sudden, you hear this group of people like singing and praising God, and you hear them speaking in perfect Swahili, <laughs> perfect English, perfect, no accent, perfect, like your language. You're like, Oh my word, what's going on? Okay, this is amazing. We hear them speaking in our own tongues. So that would be the second view. Um, and uh, again, people debate back and forth. I lean towards the second view, the one I just described, that, they, that it's a miracle of hearing that's happening interpretation. That's the view I lean towards, but there's weaknesses with that view, and there's weaknesses with the other view. So I, I'm not solidly landed. But here's what I, here's where I do land. And everybody can agree on this. Okay? There's a purpose for this event. Regardless of the view you take. 
the miracle that's happening, it is a reversal of what happened to humans at the Tower of Babel, or Babylon, same word, in Genesis 11. That's the significance of this event, okay? That's the purpose. That's why it's happening. In the story of Babel, okay, all humans on earth are speaking one language. And they gather together to make a great name for themselves. So I'm going to read Genesis 11 4 for you. This is what they say. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So ultimately, these humans, what are they trying to do? They're, they're saying, let us ascend into heaven. This is highly symbolic. They're, they're trying to build themselves up to make their names great, go into the clouds where God is. This is another attempt at what Satan tried to convince Eve to do. You will be like one of the Elohim, one of the heavenly beings. You want to be like one of the sky beings? You want to be like the gods? You want to join the gods? You want to rule that way? That's how you become great. You build yourself up <coughs> to the heavens. And so they build this massive tower. But in the story, there's some humor, because here they are building this massive tower to get up high, and God has to come down and see what they're up to. It's like, he's like, okay, you know, you still haven't gotten anywhere close, guys. And so he comes down, down to their level, and scrambles their languages so that humans can no longer understand each other and scatters them over the face of the earth, which marks the beginning of the different nations we read about in the biblical story. But now, in our story, in Acts chapter 2, once again, God has come down. He has come down from his throne to earth as a man, as Jesus, our king. And on earth, as Jesus, he doesn't seek to make his name great. He empties himself, humbles himself, even to the point of death. But then God the Father exalts him, bestows on him, in the language of Paul, the name that is above every name. And then he raises him up. At the end of the book of Luke and at the beginning of the book of Acts, he raises them up into the heavens where the Babylonians were trying to get as they're building this tower. One man alone, the perfect man, God has given him access, and he's ascended into heaven, and he has received a great name. And then, from heaven, Jesus pours out his spirit. And what does he do? He reverses what happened at Babylon. Everyone at this moment in time is able to understand each other while they worship Jesus, the ascended Son of Man. So the picture here is that Jesus' spirit has the power to do what Acts is all about. Bring the fame and the reign and the rule of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And unify all nations in worshiping him with one voice. So regardless of what you think the tongues in this passage are... That's the significance of what's going on here. Jesus has received a great name and ascended to heaven after coming down, as God did so long ago at Babylon. And Jesus, by his spirit, has provided one common language again 
the language of worship. Worship to the Son of Adam, to Jesus, the risen King. And he has the power to unify all nations under his throne. <clears throat> Let's look at the next section. Peter's now going to stand up just as he stood up in the midst of his brothers. And in chapter, as Peter stood up in chapter 1 to elect a new member of the 12, he stands up and they elect Matthias. Now Peter's standing again. He addresses the crowd. Peter preaches. And this is verses 14 to 36. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. So apparently there was actually quite a few people thinking they were drunk. Which is one reason I don't think everyone hears them in their own language. Maybe I'm wrong there. Maybe they did hear everybody speaking different languages and just were confused. But if there's some, I think they're hearing chaos. They're not hearing their own languages. It's only 9 in the morning. I think Peter's making a little bit of a joke here. Okay, Come on, guys. It's too early to get sloshed. Like, it's 9 a.m. We haven't had time to hit. The bars aren't even open yet, or whatever you want to say. Like, this is not what's going on, guys. And then he quotes from Joel 2, 28 to 32. Um, and he quotes this whole section from Joel. Not just about the spirit bearing port being poured out, but about the end of the world that's going to come one day through Jesus before he comes again. But they view the pouring out of the spirit as just part of this whole package of when Jesus comes, comes and comes again. The spirit's going to be poured out. And that's what Joel talks about here. So look at verse 17. In the last days... I will pour out my spirit on all people. Again, he's quoting the prophet Joel in chapter 2 of Joel's prophecy. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show... Though now he carried fast forward to some of the stuff about the second coming, right? I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, this is Peter's first sermon text. And uh, he's going to go to a few others. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus, the one who has poured out this spirit that you see being poured out. Because now that this part of Joel has happened, there is judgment coming. The world will be coming undone one day. Turn to the Lord for salvation. And so that's what he does. He says in verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Um, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. So notice that there. Jesus' death was not an accident. Um, 
We talked about this earlier, uh, a couple weeks ago, about how Jesus is, is supposed to be pictured as a new Moses, the servant saved the servants. Even this, by the way, is just a little tipping of your hand towards how Jesus is like a new Moses. Do you remember how Moses was supposed to prove his validity as a true prophet of God to the people of Israel? Through signs and wonders and miracles. He came, and he had three different miracles. He threw his staff down. It was a snake. And, and what did the Israelites eventually want to do to Moses? Let's kill him. <laughs> Let's kill the true prophet of God because he's led us into this wilderness mess, right? So, again, the history repeats itself. Peter's tipping his hand here with some of the language he's using. And he says, Jesus, however, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. His death was not an accident. This is according to the plan and knowledge of God. Jesus didn't get blindsided by the cross. This was plan A, not plan B. Peter continues, Jesus did this with the help of wicked men. Put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And now Peter gives some more biblical support for this. And just like we saw in chapter 1, where Peter quotes the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, um, the Psalms provided a pattern for Judas's betrayal and the death of Judas and the replacement of Judas by another. That pattern um, is all found in the book of Psalms of what happens in the life of King David. And David says, what happens to me is going to be is a pattern of what's going to happen to my son, well, in chapter 16 and chapter 110, um, there's further evidence that Peter gives that David, the king of Israel, the writer of so many psalms in our Bible, David fully expected that he would have a son that would live forever on his throne and even defeat death itself. So we don't have a time to do a deep dive into these psalms. Save that for when we preach the book of Psalms. But... For now, just look at verse 25 of Acts 2. David said about him, about Jesus, David said about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy ones see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And then Peter gives his commentary in these verses. He says this in verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David decayed. <laughs> right? He died. He was buried. His tomb is here to this day. Like you can go see his bones. right? But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. So, does anyone remember where um, God promised David that a forever king would sit on David's throne one day? Anyone remember where in the Old Testament God promised David, you're going to have a son who will live forever? You remember? 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Don't have time to go there. I encourage you to write it down. Read about it. 2 Samuel 7, um, God promises David he'll have a future king. So David knew this. And so David can speak about this 
Holy One who will not decay in the grave. Verse 31, Peter continues, Seeing what was to come, he, David, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For... And now Peter goes to another psalm of David, Psalm 110. He says, David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, says Peter, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is your king and your Lord. So here, Psalm 116, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, they portray a son of David, someone that David even called his Lord, as being seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven after defeating death itself. So much more could be said, but let's go on to see the response now. 3,000 believe in verses 37 to 41. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We killed our Messiah. What should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So I just want you to notice as we close four things about this sermon that are our takeaways for today. First, these first hearers of this spirit-empowered, biblically-saturated sermon, they were cut to the heart. These words they heard pierced them. They realized it was they who had cheered for Jesus' death and that they'd been in the wrong. And this being cut to the heart, having your heart pierced, it is the beginning of following Jesus for anyone. If you or I, if we are not really, really truly cut to the heart about our own sins and our own failures to live the life that our Creator has called us to live, if we're not cut to the heart, broken by our sin, by our selfishness, by our pride, by our anger, by our greed, by our lust, by our susceptibility to temptations, by our bitterness towards other people and other Christians, if we are not cut to the heart, if we are not broken by our sin, we will not become true Christians, true followers of Jesus. It is the prelude to any response. You must be cut to be healed. You must be broken to be fixed by the king. You must see yourself as dead 
if you're going to benefit from resurrection life. Right? You come to know, I need Jesus. You don't go to the doctor if you don't think you're sick, do you? And if the doctor can't convince you that you're sick, you're not going to take the treatment that he spells out for you. You have to be convinced. I am a sinner. I am broken. I need Christ. You could spend every Sunday for the rest of your life going to church. Perfect record. But if you don't see your sin and have Jesus to forgive you for your sin, real sin, if you don't see Jesus as your Savior from it, then you're not a Christian. You don't know the Lord, the true Lord, and why he came. Sin you know, this process of being saved starts with being cut to the heart, right? Being convicted. And it leads to a response. You want to do something about it. You don't just grovel in misery with a broken heart. You see, what shall I do? You see that? That's what they say. Brothers, what do we do? What do I do about this? And they're told to repent. That's the second thing here. Repentance is a word that means turn. Turn. I repented of going the wrong direction and I turned. The GPS sent me the wrong way. And I have to turn. People that are truly, truly cut to their hearts, really broken, are called turn, turn, turn from whatever path of living you are on that doesn't honor King Jesus, turn and follow him. If there's anything in your life, that's the question. What do you need to turn from? Is your heart cut right now even with a conviction of something you know that is wrong? That the spirit wants to cut out of you <laughs> with the help of Jesus? Do you feel the pain of heaven's knife cutting the voice of Jesus pricking. What do you do? Turn. Turn to him. Turn in the direction of the Savior who has open arms. Like in the parable of the prodigal son. Right? That is Jesus' picture of the Father. He's got his arms open, running to embrace the one who turns. No matter what he's done, no matter how far he's fallen, turn. And then what do they do next? Be baptized in the name of Jesus. They're to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and the result of the act of being baptized in the name of Jesus. Peter says that they will receive the Spirit just as the apostles had. It's important that we read these verses here in light of everything that the Bible says about baptism, about forgiving of sins, about receiving the Spirit. So, in other words, the act of baptism is not a work that you do to then get saved. There are many people that choose to go through the waters of baptism and they actually don't end up following Jesus or don't even really know who Jesus is, why he came, what it means to follow him. They weren't cut by their sins. They don't repent from their sins. 
No, water in and itself does not save. But all throughout the Bible, faith, trust in Jesus is linked in the New Testament with baptism. It takes faith to go through the waters. And so being baptized is a sign of living, breathing faith, trust in Jesus to save you from your sins. It's the first step that someone who's cut to the heart about their sin, repents from it, is called to take. All throughout the Bible, I'm not making this up. The eunuch turns to Jesus, the Ethiopian, and says, or turns to Peter, you know, Philip, and he says, I believe, where's water? Right? We get, we get this all through the Bible. So, I ask you, have you walked the waters with Jesus? Maybe that's the first step that you need to take to following Jesus as you turn to him this morning. And the final response to Peter's sermon is that they accepted his message. And 3,000 were baptized. So I'll just end with this. The message about Jesus is a message that calls for acceptance. You receive it. You believe it. You accept that it's true. And that it's true for you. Which means the gospel message isn't a message that you can remain indifferent about or on the fence. That's, about, that's rejecting it, right? Either Jesus is Lord or he's not. And his lordship is something you accept. You accept him as it's offered here as he's offered as their king. Jesus is the death-defeating king who offers pardon and forgiveness to anyone who accepts the news that he is their king. And so I invite you right now, if you haven't accepted Jesus, really accepted him, turn. Turn to him. If your heart is cut in any way, don't quench the spirit by going home and watching TV or numbing it or whatever. If you are cut by your sin, even as a believer, we can be cut again and again and again as the Spirit keeps turning the knife and says, pricks that conscience. No longer with condemnation for the believer, but with conscience to turn. Turn from the paths that lead to death and turn to the Jesus who gives us life. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer. And I invite you to accept Lord Jesus, if you have not. Lord, I want to say right now that I believe I'm a sinner. And that the message about Jesus first came with cutting conviction to me 26 years ago when I first was cut to the heart as a young boy. And realized I needed to turn. And so I just pray that right now your Holy Spirit would, would cut us in conviction about any ways that we need to turn. Turn to Jesus. Accept afresh his news that he has forgiven us. And he is coming again. And Lord, if anyone has not done this, I pray that you for the first time, that they would turn to you.
Can I just pray this in Jesus' name? Amen.